You may be seated. As you're doing that, go ahead and grab your Bibles. You're going to need your Bibles this morning. We've got a very exciting chapter to read uh, together, uh, Acts chapter 12, if you have a Bible. If you don't have one, there should be one somewhere near you under a chair nearby, um, and go ahead and grab that Bible. Acts chapter 12 is our passage. Um, also, if you don't happen to own a Bible, take the Bible that's near you and make it your own, okay? Um, own the one that you can grab. Basically, put your name in it. That's our gift to you. Um, it's just a cool way for you to begin your journey with Jesus, and it's a, a great way to start. So, um, Acts chapter 12, as you're turning there, I have a question for you guys. Uh, how many of you all like to watch movies? Any movie watchers in here? Raise your hand. All right. All, how many of you guys like to watch action-packed movies? Any like that? Some of my guys. Some of the ladies in here. Okay. Um, ladies like chick flicks? No? It's not, it's not an assumption. I'm just asking the question. All right. Um, my wife and I, I enjoy watching movies, but usually I'm the action guy and she's the chick flick. And uh, every now and then when we watch a movie together, I'm the one who has to get suffer for the chick flick movie. And... Uh, Usually by the end of it, sometimes I get emotional in movies. Any guys like that? You get emotional sometimes? All right. You're, you're still a man, okay? Not going to take my man card from me or anything. Um, but so we watch movies. But one thing I love, all right, you can relate to this. One thing I notice about every great movie, um, it has to have what they call a plot twist. And the more inconceivable or inconspicuous, that's a better word, the more inconspicuous the, the plot twist is, the better ratings the movie is going to have. But isn't it interesting when that, when it comes to our real lives, um, we would prefer things not to have plot twists. Uh, most of us would perhaps would choose more of a smooth and calm life, maybe something a little bit that is slightly predictable. Uh, maybe every now and then we might want a lapse of judgment, maybe go uh, scuba diving and swim with sharks or swim, maybe swim with some stingrays or jump out of an airplane with a parachute guide on your back. Okay, some people are intensely crazy and things like that, but nothing too out of control, all right? Because we, like, we don't want to blow it. We don't want to lose our life in the process and experience some extreme uncertain events. But what I want to say is uh, one time, when we, whenever you go through life, oftentimes you'll come across unexplainable situations. And that's what I want to ask you. I just want to talk about today in our passage. Um, what do you do when you find yourself in an unexpected crisis? When everything goes awry in your life, like all your plans go up in smoke, um, everything that you thought and everything you planned that was going to happen, kind of just uh, you find yourself upside down in a ditch emotionally. Like, what's going on here? Like, I didn't see this one coming. You ever been there before? Well, that's exactly what we find in our text today. In Acts chapter 12, we're going to see that the church, um, everything was going awesome for the church. Last week we saw that, I mean, the gospel was spreading, the church was growing. I mean, people who were not even of the Jewish descent and nationality um, were being saved. Uh, they call them Gentiles in the Bible. I used to think when I was a brand new believer, they were talking about reptiles. Like, what's a reptile? What is that? Um, but it's a Gentile, someone who's a non-Jew. Um, but these are people, the gospel spreading to everyone, everywhere, and God is transforming people's lives. And that was last week's chapter. We saw what was happening. God was beginning a new church in a different city. Um, so cool. But now when we come to this chapter of Acts chapter 12, the things that are happening back in the original town in Jerusalem, where God first started the church, it was going bananas. The whole, the whole church was experiencing this unexpected trial, this, this crisis, if you will. What I want you to see is uh, how they respond to the crisis. So, in fact, let's go ahead and open your Bibles. Actually, let's go begin in verse number one. We're going to start there in verse number one. Text begins and says, about that time, this is the same time when Paul and Barnabas from last chapter were making their way back home to Jerusalem. 
So about that time, as, they were, as Paul and Barnabas were traveling home, um, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So what's happening here is this, uh, this king, anytime you see the name Herod, and anytime in, in the New Testament, it's just a title. Herod the king, he's just one of other Herods in the Bible. But anytime you see the word Herod, no, this is a bad dude. Like none of the Herods in the Bible are good guys. Um, and the Herod, Herod the Great uh, actually was the guy who started killing babies when Jesus was born because he had this uh, complex. He wanted to be the only ruler of the nation. Um, so it's, it's just amazing. Every time you see this Herod guy show up in the Bible, bad things happen. So this king of the, of the, of the nation here begins to attack these innocent believers. So imagine we're having church and all of a sudden some soldiers come in and start taking people out and beating them up in the hallways, trying to disrupt the church service. That's what was happening in Jerusalem at this time. All right, so keep going. It gets, it gets continues to get ugly here. And verse number two, he killed, this is Herod again, Herod kills James, the brother of John, with the sword. So if, you, if, if those of you who don't know who James is, James was one of the uh, closest disciples of Jesus. He was a pillar in the church. He was a strong leader for the, for the church family. And he's an apostle. And what, what, what Herod does, he goes into the church and says, I'm going to start beating people up, you know, put it, persecuting them, throw them in jail. Let's get one of the leaders also. So he takes James, throws him in jail, and then kills him. Just kills him. And the only reason, actually, let's go down to verse number three, and you'll see why. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, stop for a minute. It's giving you an intent, he's showing us the intent of his heart. It's all a political scheme. So the church is getting caught up in the crosshairs of someone's political agenda. And now the church is experiencing this crisis, unexpected situation. Everything was going awesome in chapter number 11, and now it's, becoming to, it's beginning to uncrumble, fall apart, so it seems. So keep reading in verse number 3. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So what we have here is a, a bad situation becoming a very, very ugly situation, and now it's accelerated to the point where he's arrested the leader of the church, the pastor of the church, Peter, and now he's in jail too. And what do you think is going to happen to Peter? Come on, somebody tell me. He's going he's to be executed, right? That's what happens. That's what it looks like. He's being, James was killed. That's what happens. So now we've got a situation where two of the leaders, one is dead and one is getting ready to die. That's what's happened in this text. Um, and let's continue reading verse number four. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. That's 16 soldiers. He sent 16 soldiers to guard Peter, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And what do you think he wants to do? His intention is to kill him. He wants to kill Peter. So we have an accelerated bad situation going on here. There's no escaping this possible scenario. He's in a flat-out crisis, and notice what the church does. Verse number five. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made. Somebody say, plot twist. That's what happened. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So what, what, what did they do? What did the church do, guys? Come on, you're going to help me preach this sermon today. What were they doing? They were praying. Now, they weren't just praying. The Bible says that they were earnestly praying, right? That's what the text says. So my question, what is the difference between praying and earnest praying? Well, here's a good definition that you might hopefully will help understand what earnest praying is. Earnest prayer is an intense, a deeply passionate 
cry for God's help. So what we find happening here is they are earnest. The church sees that they're in a crisis. There's no way we're getting out of this one. Everything's falling apart. And here they begin to gather together. The church leans in and they begin to earnestly cry out to God for help. Actually, this word only appears three times in the entire Bible. This earnest, earnest word here. It actually is two words combined together. It means outstretched. So it's a physical illustration of somebody laying on the ground, stretched out in, in desperation. But there's also an emotional component to what's going on here. There's this, there's this deep sense of, I got nothing here, God. I need you to do something. So imagine, all right, there's two ways I can illustrate this for you. I'll, I'll go the latter um, in my mind. Um, if you could only see what's going on in my mind, right, it would, just, it would freak you out. Okay, so one of the things that, which, another way of illustrating this, this will help. Um, Imagine you have a loved one that is sick. Like you, they find out they got a fever, right? They just all of a sudden came down with a fever after work. And you give them some medicine, and you notice that the temperature is like 100. And so you begin to pray, God, please help my, help my mom or help my, help my child to, to break this fever. Uh, please, God, I pray that you would allow the medicine to work. But you notice that the, the temperature only increases. Like it goes from 100 to 102 in 30 minutes. And then it jumps up to 103. And then it gets all, an hour later, it's at a 104. Now, let me ask you something. Is your prayer going to change at all? Are you going to continue to be like, God, I just pray that the medicine will work. I pray that you will just help my, help my loved one to feel better. No, what are you going to do? As the temperature rises, your prayer temperature is going to rise as well. There's this sense of urgency. God, I don't know what to do. I need you to do something, God. I got nothing. You're going to have to break through and heal. You're going to have to do something that I cannot do. It's in your hands, God. Help. That's the emotion that's happening here in this text. This earnest prayer, God, I'm calling out to you. I'm not going anywhere, God, until you do something to change this situation. That's what earnest prayer is. And because of this earnest prayer of the church, there's a significant flipping of the script. A plot twist occurs in this passage. What it does is their earnest prayer provokes God in such a way to move in on their situation and God completely transforms everything that happens after verse number five. Now I want to show you, he does three things. God does three specific things to, and it's in the text, that I am absolutely convinced he will do in our lives. Did you hear what I just said? It's a big, bold statement. I just crossed a line. I'm no longer just describing what the Bible is telling us. Now I'm telling you these are the very things that God will do in our lives when we earnestly pray. There's three specific things that I want to show you. Um, how many of you guys want to see what those three things are? Come on now. I'm excited. I want to see this. All right. Before we do that, though, we're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Holy Spirit got to calm my mind down. I'm going 100 miles a minute. So um, let's just pray and ask God to, to meet with us. Lord, we recognize um, that there are going to be seasons in our life where we're going to come across a crisis. And Lord, there are going to be seasons in the church and our church family's life where we're going to come across an unexpected trial. And so God, right now, we beg you through the power of Jesus Christ and in the power of his name and the blood of his, of his cross, I pray, we pray, that you will allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds, help us to understand what you are saying in this passage. I pray that you would do a convicting work in our hearts today. I pray that you would compel us, Lord, 
to trust you into greater depths and greater journeys of, of different seasons of life. Lord, we don't know what to do. We're in, a, we're in a place that, God, we don't have an answer, but we know that you are with us, and I pray that you will speak to us through your word today. Show us what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so with that said, let's get into verse number six and see what God does to flip this script. All right, begin verse six, it says, Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, so that, this is the very night he was getting ready to crucify him, he was gonna next, or, uh, kill him, it was the next day, Peter was sleeping. Interesting. He was sleeping between two soldiers. You can put ugly soldiers there if you want. I'm just, I'm just kidding. That's not, it doesn't say that in the Bible. That was just a joke thing. All right. Um, bound by both two chains and centuries before the door were guarding the, the prison. So I want you to picture the scene here. I need some help. All right. Uh, Scott, you're right in the front row. If you're sitting in front row, you're picked. All right. Paul, I need your help too. Come up here. Now, these guys are not ugly. Let me preface. All right. They're not ugly, they're, but they're macho. All right, so what happens is the text says that he, Peter is chained between two soldiers, all right? Now, what does the Bible say Peter was doing, guys? He was sleeping. Now, come on now. He's getting ready to die. That Tomorrow morning, he's going to be brought out, and he's no way of escape. Look at these guys. Their muscles are huge. There's no way there he's going to escape. I mean, he, the Bible says he's flat out, conked out, sleeping. Like, just imagine, where are you going to sleep? you got to sleep on somebody's shoulder, right? You're going to sleep. And, you know, drool me sleeping. Drool coming down your face, you know, the whole thing. I mean, he is chained. Thank you, guys. Thank you. There's absolutely no escaping the situation. That's what I want to point out to you. Most people, and by the way, we wouldn't fault him if he was freaking out, would you? I mean, come on. Most of us would be like a nervous wreck analyzing, oh, no, what, what's going to happen here? There's got to be an escape route somewhere here, or maybe I could pull a MacGyver trick or something. Maybe something, there's got to be a solution, or, or I wonder if my death is going to be swift, or if they sharpen the blade, and is it going to be dull? Am I going to have to suffer an agony as I'm being killed? Or should I prepare speech and, and, and preach the gospel in that setting? He doesn't think about any of those things. The Bible says that he was sleeping. And let me go ahead and say, the Holy Spirit is trying to connect the dots very clearly for us because the sleeping, this sleeping was a direct connection because of what happened in verse number five. Their earnest prayer produced this sleeping in Peter's heart. In fact, that's your first point of your outline. When I earnestly pray to God, God will supernaturally provide peace to rest when I'm in a crisis. That's what we see happening in this passage, and that's what you will see happening in your life as well um, as you trust the Lord and, and you're in a situation of a crisis. I just find that absolutely fascinating. To me, um, God wants to do the same thing uh, no matter what happens in our situation. Some of you guys, I know, some of you guys, I was preparing this text and studying this text out, and the Lord just flooded my mind with different circumstances of, of people in our church that are in an unexpected crisis or an unexpected trial. You didn't know this was going to happen. You just you mind your own business. Everything was going great for a season, and then all of a sudden, your world flipped upside down, and now you don't know what to do. And, you're, and I started thinking, maybe some of you guys are struggling with um, parents who have struggled with Alzheimer's, and they're all, it's just all those scenarios where you got the medical diagnosis that did not come back well and favorable have rebellious children, perhaps, or maybe there's uh, some addictions that you guys, some people are struggling. Some of you are there, like you're there in that place. But I just want you to see 
that God will offer us peace. He's telling us he will grant us peace when we are earnestly praying to him. All of this stuff reminded me of um, a, a story about a preacher back in the 1800s. Um, his name is Andrew Murray. I don't know if you guys know who Andrew Murray is. He is a, he's a South African Dutch Reformed pastor back in the 1800s. And he was known, most known for uh, the work that God did through his church. Like, there, there was such a gospel spread in Africa because of his church that he was pastoring. And when, you asked, when they asked him, what, why is your church so unique? Why is God doing such a special thing through you guys? Because they had suffered quite a bit in their church. And here's, here's what he said. Listen to this. This is a quote um, regarding their effectiveness as a church to proclaim the gospel. Listen to this. We must begin to believe that God, in the mystery of prayer, has entrusted us with a force that can move the heavenly world and can bring its power down to earth. Like that, that is gripping in our soul. The first part is the most convicting. We must begin to believe. We have to believe that, that God is in control. In the crisis, he is in control. Therefore, he can grant us a supernatural peace in the crisis of unexpected turmoil that you might be in. That's, that's a critical thing I want you to understand. In fact, he's a God who can take chaos and bring peace. He can take crisis and make stillness. I, I love what um, we see in uh, the, the Gospels with Jesus whenever he was in the boat with Peter. Remember what happened with Peter? He was freaking out with all the other disciples, and the storm came, and what, it just, Jesus, don't you care what's going on right now? And what did Jesus, he got, gets up, gets to the top of the boat, and he just sticks his hands out and says, peace be still. Isn't that what he said? Peace be still. And what happened was the stillness of the water, instantly, peace on the water. What we see happening in Peter's heart is the exact same thing. God gave him a stillness and a peace in the midst of chaos. It's so good. I wanted you to catch that. So that's the first thing. Our, when we earnestly pray as a church or maybe as an individual, God will grant us supernatural peace to rest in a crisis. Now, there's something else I want you to see in this passage as well. Drop down to verse number seven. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and light shone in the cell. All right, all right pause for just a minute. What would be the, the natural reaction for you when you see an angel showing up in your house? What would you, wow, right? You'd be just, wow, right? That would be the response. In fact, now it's time for you to participate in the sermon. Are you guys ready? We're going to read that verse again. And when we get to that part, after the word cell, I want you to respond with that direction. Here we go. Verse number six, now, or seven. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and light shone in the cell. Wow. Yeah, like, wow, right? That's a crazy thing. But here's the crazy, keep going though, keep going. He, he struck, the angel had to strike Peter on the side to wake him up, saying, get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. That's so good. That's so good. In fact, that's your second point I want you to make aware of. All right, second point is this. Um, when I earnestly pray, God supernaturally provides awareness to follow his plan. So, I mean, Peter was sleeping in, the, in verse number six because he... he understood that God was in control and he was going to die in the morning. And you know what? Everything's, it's in God's hands. I mean, at the end of the day, I just know it's, it, it, the Lord's in control. I'm not going to stress about it. Like that's, what, that's such a supernatural thing. But, but here we find him, he's sleeping in the angel ship. He's not even aware of it. 
Now, if you have a pen or a highlighter, circle that word sell in your Bible. What Luke does here, the author of this particular book, as he's telling us the story, he does something kind of sneaky here in the passage. That word sell, it doesn't mean, it's not translated prison cell in the actual language, the Greek language when he, when he wrote it in. The actual word cell is the same word that's only typically used to describe someone's home, like their dwelling place. So what, what, what Luke is doing here is he's saying, look, Peter was so comfortable in that cell, it was as if he was at home sleeping in his own bed. That's what he does here. Like, that's crazy. I mean, I just showed you. He's between two, not ugly guards, okay? Um, and, they're, and they're stinky, no offense. It's just ugly, right? And this, he knows he's going to die, but yet he's at peace at, as if he was in his own bed. I just think that's so cool to me. And Luke kind of throws it in there. That's supernatural peace is what that is. It's impossible peace, but it's supernaturally possible peace. So continuing back to the text, so here we go back and we see that an angel shows up and just surprise, and there he is, and he's sleeping. Um, have you guys ever been in a situation where you sensed somebody was staring at you at a distance? You ever been like maybe at the mall or something and you're just kind of hanging out with your family and your, and your, your gang? I always call it a gang. Anyway, so I got a gang. I got five. Okay, so anyway, we, um, we go to the mall or Target or whatever, and you can just feel it, right? Like somebody, somebody over there is looking at me, yo, you know? Um, well, my, my kids, I've got three kids, and they're all at the age right now where they like to wake up in the middle of the night uh, to get water or because they want some snack to eat, right? Um, so my son Landon does the craziest thing, and I'm not kidding when he does this. Um, absolutely freaks me out. He, 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 what he does is he, he comes into my room, middle of the night, right, um, comes in my room. He has to, by the way, he never wakes mama up. Nobody wakes mama up. They wake me up. They have to go all the way on the other side of the bedroom to get to me, and I'm sleeping, and Landon does this. He doesn't just nudge you or anything like that. He just comes right at you like, this is me, this is the bed. He just stares at you like this. <laughs> you know, and you're like, you're sleeping, right, and you're, you can feel like, okay, somebody's staring at me right now. It's kind of good. And I, you open your eyes, and you, all of a sudden you see this little silhouette of a little person there, you know? What? You know, what are you doing? You, you can't do that, little man. You freak me out. That's got to be illegal. No. No more. I, can, I remember that. It's, it's, it happens even, you know, frequently, actually. Um, but I just am amazed that Peter, here is Peter in the cell, and he's not waking up. The angel has to literally slap him. I mean, He's, he's so out. The light's shining, everything's happening, and he's not even aware of it. So the angel has to slap him to wake him up uh, just to make sure he gets, he, he said, once he, and funny thing is, once he wakes him up, look what happens at the end of the text, or then that particular verse. And he struck Peter on the side, and he woke him up saying, get up quickly. And what happened? The chains fell off his hands. I love that scene of chain between two guards. This is really happening he, the, the chains fall off of his hands, and he realizes, wait a minute, God's got a different game plan here. Maybe I'm not going to die tomorrow morning. That's what's happening. This is awareness of God's got a different plan here. And, and I, I want you to hear that because you guys, some of you are in the middle of a crisis right now, and it may look like there's no way to figure it out. Um, there's no solution, but hear this. This is the text very clearly. Earnest prayer changes the plot. It switches things up. God moves in, and the chains that might be holding you down are not there. By the way, footnote here, this is exactly what happened to us when we first met Jesus. 
Some of you guys have never had this encounter with Christ before and you're here this morning and you're, you're listening to this. Well, hear me when I'm getting ready to say, this is exactly what Jesus wants to do for you. I mean, some of us are still in chains to our bondage, to our sin, and we can't get out of it. And you know by hearing this message that God is a, he's gonna have to pour out judgment on us for our sin. And we can't escape it. There's, think about how terrifying that is for just a minute. Those of you who are in here never really entertained this thought, check into this, okay? This is serious. God is going to have to pour out all of his wrath on our sin. Does he want to pour his wrath out on you? No. He wants to pour his wrath. He has to pour his wrath on our rebellion towards him. So important you get that. And and there's no way you can get out of it. You can't unless Jesus shows up in the cell. And when you see that he's coming for you, the chains fall off. And in that moment... Jesus, he lets you go free. He says, here, take all of my righteousness. You are forgiven. You are made clean. And I'm going to take all of your filthy, wretched right, uh, your rebellion, and I'm going to hold it, and I'm going to put the chains on, and I'm going to go to your execution. That's what Jesus did for us. That is scandalous. That is, that is beyond comprehension. But here's the beautiful thing. It's so cool. I just want to connect the dots. There's a gospel link here that I don't want anybody to miss. Some of you need to understand Jesus is in the cell with you. Jesus is wanting you to realize he loves you. Get your eyes up. And may, some of you guys are feeling that slap by Jesus. Bam! Like you just got slapped just then when I just explained this gospel to you. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you, saying, wake up. I'm here to set you free. That's what's happening. All right. So go back to the text. Let's rewind, get back here to what's happening. So, the, so here you got Peter um, being delivered from this prison. Angel shows up, um, and it's just a remarkable thing. He realizes God's got a different plan. But it needs to be noted here, so important you understand this as well, that although God's plan was to deliver, to deliver Peter from this particular crisis, I don't want you to get confused what the main point is. The point isn't that God will always deliver you from every crisis that you're in. Rather, the point is that God will always lead you through the crisis that you're in. That's the point. For instance, remember the text started out by telling us that a guy named James, the Apostle James, was also arrested? Remember that? Well, how come the Lord didn't send an angel to deliver him out of that crisis? Was James just not loved by as much as Peter was? Well, God didn't love him as much. No, that's not it at all. The fact is, the point of this whole the passage here about this whole deliverance, God doesn't always promise to deliver us, but he always promises to lead us and guide us through the actual crisis. And that's what he did for James. And that's what we see God doing in Peter's life. It just happened to be that God had a plan to lead him all the way through the crisis by saving him, setting him free. All right, so um, let's get down to... Uh, Verse number eight, I want you to see this. As the verse continues, the story continues to unfold in such an epic dialogue. Here we go. Um, And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals, and he did so. Underline that phrase, and he did so. We're going to come back to that. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know, this is so important, he did not know that what was actually being done by the angel was real but he thought that he was seeing a vision. Isn't that so true? Sometimes when 
we're in a situation or a crisis or a trial, we really can't figure out what God's doing, right? Like, I'm not really aware of your plan here, God. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, I'm kind of confused uh, by what's happening in my life right now. It doesn't, I was, everything was going great, then this situation happened, and, and now I don't know how to make t- heads or tails of this. Sometimes it's going to be that way for us. But I want to show you, Peter does three things that, I, I'm, that really helped me when I was unpacking this. And I want, I'm, sur- I'm sure it's going to serve you as well. Three things to do when you don't know what to do. Or better yet said this way, three things to do when God's plan don't make sense to you. All right, just follow the text. We're going to follow verse by verse here. First thing we see that Peter did, it says that he specifically stayed obedient to God. He stayed obedient to God. I had you underline that phrase in verse number eight, and he did so. So the angel says, dress yourself and put on your shoes, and he did so. Right away, it's an immediate sense of obedience. He doesn't argue or debate. He doesn't deviate from the plan. He just, he does what God said. The angel said, put your shoes on and get dressed, and he did it. Now, do you know why I bring that out? It's because that's a scary thing to do. I mean, think about it. putting your shoes on. What's so scary about that? No, it's what comes after you put on the shoes. You're getting ready to walk out of a prison cell. 16 soldiers, the whole purpose and mission of their life is to make sure your dirty rum don't escape. Mainly because you're like, he's Houdini. Every time he goes to jail, he just disappears. And he, they're, not putting, they're not tolerating it. So he knows if I walk out of this cell, I'm not even going to have a court hearing. There's not going to be an appearance before the Jews. I'm going to be executed on the spot. But he didn't argue with God. He just obeyed him. So for us, as it applies to our lives, when you, some of you guys are in a crisis right now, you know, maybe your parents have, have a, a disability that requires a lot of concern for you. Have to take care of them. Or um, maybe you've got a diagnosis yourself or whatever the crime. Maybe you lost your job and you keep trying to put in applications. No matter how hard you try, you can't get a job. Whatever the crisis is or the unexpected trial, obey the Lord. So God says Sabbath. Don't put out applications on Sabbath. Sabbath, trust me. No, God, that's impossible. I got to provide extra money for the medical bills, Lord. I got to go to work. Sabbath, obey me. Or don't get anxious about all the stuff that you can't figure out. Be anxious about nothing but in everything by, by what? Prayer and supplication. Let your request be made known. That's what I'm talking about. Obey the Lord in the crisis. That's what we see Peter doing. So what should I do when, I'm in a, when God's plans don't make sense? First, stay obedient. Secondly, stay close to God. Stay close I love how verse 9 points this out. And when, and he went out and followed him. Underline that phrase, followed him. Because that word follow, it means he just like got real close. That Greek, it, it, the word there means just like draw real close to, to the one who's leading you. So close that as the dust of the sandals of the guy in front of you kicks up, it's getting in your face. That's how close we're talking. That's what this, this word is, is kind of conveying. It's so cool because as you draw near to God, he draws near to you. That's so important for you to hear right now if you're in that situation. Sometimes it's the hardest thing to hear, isn't it? Just abide in Christ, stay close to God. That's what Peter did. All right, last thing I want to show you is this about uh, another way you, when God's plans don't make sense, what can you do? Lastly is stay confident in God. Stay confident in God. Look at verse 10. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. <laughs> Isn't that true? Isn't that how it always goes? 
Like, you start following God, and like God's, you can sense that God's going to flip the script in your situation, and you start doing what God wants you to do and staying close to him, and next thing you know, here's, an eye, here's just a massive wall just thrown right at your face. All right, what are we going to do now, God? Like, he doesn't even ask the question, what's going to happen now? Like, what's, what am I supposed to look? I told you this wasn't going to work. Bad plan. No, he, he doesn't do that. He just, what I love, listen to the verse. I, you can't say it any better how the Bible says it. It's so cool. All right, verse number 10. And it says, it opened for them of its own accord. Okay. In, in other words, it's like saying, as if it had a will. The gate had a mind of its own. And it just opens up. Now, this is before the Kroger doors, okay? They didn't have, you know, automatic doors back then. This is like, like so to us, not a big deal, but this is, the, this is a massive gate. And Peter just seems like this, wowed by the angel on its own. He didn't unlock it. He didn't just, whew. that's our God. That's what God wants to do for you. He wants to do that for our church whenever we find ourselves in a crisis or a circumstance that seems out of our control. But it has direct result because of earnest prayer of a group of people that Peter didn't even know were praying for him. All because of earnest prayer, he was made aware of God's plan. Now, I want to show you this last thing in the passage, and we'll be done. So, so far, we see that earnest prayer provoked God to provide peace to rest in a crisis, to follow, or to, to awareness to follow God's plan. And then this last one is a joy to share how he worked. Joy to share how he worked. All right, so in verse 11, we'll pick up there. So when Peter came to himself, after, you know, came to himself, he said, I, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel. By the way, clarity tends to come later, doesn't it? Just, just stay obedient, stay close. Stay confident in God. He's going to do it. Clarity will come. But just do that. All right. So, so clarity comes. He says, now I can, I'm, I'm sure that this is the Lord's hand. He rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Verse number 12. When he realized this, what's the first thing he did? He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. So this is John Mark. We'll hear about him later in our, in our study in the book of Acts. Um, where many were gathered together and were praying. So how did Peter know to go there? Well, that must have been a church, or it must have been a house that the church would often gather at for teaching and preaching and for prayer. Um, that's where they would gather for worship. So it was a common house. It was a large house. Interesting to note, it was Barnabas's sister is who we're talking about here. Um, sorry, Barabbas, yeah, Barnabas, not Barabbas. I get them mixed up all the time. Anybody do that? Barnabas, Barabbas, you know, another time. Okay, so... So yeah, it's just a cool note here. So it's a, it's a large house. So he goes to the house. Now notice what happens. Verse 13. And when he had knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came out to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, so obviously she was familiar with who Peter was, and he would come there preaching and teaching often in that house. When she recognized Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not even open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Such a cool scene. I absolutely love her authentic response. Think about it. So here's Peter. He comes aware. He's like, wait a minute. God just delivered me. This is amazing. I got to go. I got to go get out of the street. Otherwise, I'm going to get seen. He runs to the house where all the people were praying. Runs to the house. And it's so cool. He begins knocking at the door. And this lady named Rhoda um, answers the door. But she answers and says, who is there? Peter. Peter's here. 
what? Okay, so here's, here's what you, I love about her authentic response. It's not calculated or measured. So I grew up, well, when I got saved, I started going to a church that really emphasized it's so important that you control your emotions when you're in the house of God. Stoicism is very important, right? And so she doesn't measure her, her response. She doesn't bring her glasses down and says, brothers and sisters, let me give you a response. It's a, a discourse of the answer to prayer. Theology is good. And here we have Peter standing at the front. No, she didn't do that. Not at all. What does she do? I mean, she is the original aisle runner of the church. That's what she is. She's straight up Pentecostal here, man. This is exciting. I love this response. Like she, so she knocks the door and there's Peter. And says, hey, it's Peter. And she's like, oh, snap, right? Oh, she, she go down and run. Hey, hey, Peter's at the front door. Peter's at the front door. Peter's at the front door. What? Peter, so hold it. What's amazing to me is her response, but it's not measured. It's not calculated. It's just pure joy pure joy. That's the kind of response that God wants to bring in your life. God wants to take the sadness and the, the serious response you're experiencing right now and flip it on its head and bring you joy. That's the point. So your whole point, the third point is God wants to give you a joy to share with other people what God is doing. That's why the crisis is in your life. Do you see it? God's going to get glory in your crisis. He wants to use it for his glory. And that's what we see happening with Peter. She's going bananas over it. And I love, so how, did the, how does the church respond? You crazy woman. Lost your cotton-picking mind. What are you thinking? Right? That's how they respond. They responded with doubt. And this is, this is so important. I want to say this as well. Um, it needs to be noted, especially in our time. I'm sick and tired of people saying, um, you know, God isn't going to answer your prayer because you don't have enough faith. Okay, if you believe that, you need to get off that train. That's not true, because what happened in this passage is telling the opposite. It's not a matter of the measure of faith you have. No, it's actually it's just the believing, yeah, God can do it, and we're probably going to be shocked when he does. That's okay. God's going to grow your faith through the crisis. When he answers your prayer, you're going to be like, oh, I should have known that was going to happen. Yeah, that's, a, that's our God. So don't be discouraged if you feel like I don't have enough faith to pray that God is going to do it. That's why you have a church family. That's why we lean into each other because we can help support each other's faith when we're, when we're weak at it. That's so good because she had a lot of faith. She knew that God just performed a miracle. She knew God did it. God answered their prayer. That's so awesome. So with that said, look at verse number 17. Look, how, look what happens after he gets in the, in the house. They're, everyone's so excited, they're amazed. What? This is crazy. Peter's at the front door. Um, so verse number 17 says, but motioning to them, with his hands to be silent. Shh, be quiet, be quiet. He described, listen to me, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. There are so many people that are in this church that need to hear how God is working in your story. We have to see that God is at work in the crisis, in this, in this trial that you're in. He is working. He'll give you the awareness to see it. Earnest prayer will give you that. But we need, we need to celebrate what God's doing. That's why we do these God at work stories in our church. So he shares what happens. In this, and he said to them, tell these things to James and to the other brothers. And to the, to the brothers. And he, then he departed and went out to another place. But to me, it's, it's so encouraging because God wants to use our crisis for his glory. And this is why God gives us the peace to rest. Uh, this is why God gives us the awareness to follow his plan. It's so that whether 
we are in a crisis, whether we're going through a crisis or we're on the other side of the crisis, we can have a supernatural joy knowing that God is doing a marvelous work before our eyes. Here, church, remember this. Remember this statement. Remember that only God can transform a crisis into a celebration. Only God can do that. Only God can, can take an unexpect, unexpected sadness and transform it into unexplainable joy. Only God can do that. And he will if we earnestly pray. So here's the last thing I want you to, to know. Earnest prayer to God. This is what I want our church to wrap our hearts around. Earnest prayer to God leads to an evident work of God. Every time. You know, I I love this passage of Scripture because it's so cool to see what God did in the early church. Um, But I just want you to know, this is not a story that is meant just to describe a situation in the early church. I believe with all my heart, this is here for our edification as well. Because God wants to do the very same things in our hearts too, thousands of years later. And I I, I don't just want to read about the Acts chapter 12 church. I really want us to be an Acts chapter 12 church. So I'm going to ask you all to do me a favor and be bold together for just a moment. I'm going to actually ask those of people who are in this room right now that have found themselves in an unexpected trial. Like you're there. That's you. That is so you right now. Um, You don't know how to make sense of it. You don't know what to do. You're confused, but you know you desperately need God to move. I'm going to ask the church to be bold and to be an Acts chapter 12 church. I'm going to ask you to pray, to pray for them, to pray with them right here, right now. So I'm going to ask those of you who might be in that situation of a crisis or an unexpected trial, like you're there right now, would you be willing to stand? Let us be the Acts chapter 12. Stop reading about it and let's be that. That's what God wants for us. Let's not be awkward. It's not awkward to pray in church. If that's you, please stand. I want every, I mean, seriously, there are, I know there are issues in our church. People are going through stuff. Amen. Amen. Please be bold and stand. Some of you right now are not standing yet. Let the church rally around you. Please, please. We want to see God move in your lives. We want to see it. All right, for those of you who are sitting around the people that are around you, I'm going to ask you to go circle them. I want you to, I want you to pray with them. Pray earnest prayers for these brothers and sisters. Find out what's going on in their lives and let's pray together. Let's be the church. Let the Holy Spirit lead here. Let him guide you. Let him show us how he can flip the script on our lives.